Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dragon Fruit. I'm your host, Caroline Chang, and today I am so excited to share an episode featuring Florence Williams, a journalist and author who is a contributing editor to Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for various publications, including the New York Times and National Geographic. In this episode, we discuss one of my all-time favorite books, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. This book discusses the physical, mental, and spiritual benefits we all gain from exposure to natural spaces. She also gives us a little fun glimpse into her writing process and shares some beautiful stories about her time in the field. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it, and thank you so much for listening. Okay, well, first of all, thank you so much for being here and for taking the time to sit down. I love The Nature Fix, and like right after I read it, I recommended it to my mom and some of my friends and stuff like I love that book so much. Thank you, Caroline. Yeah. So it's very special for me to have you here. Um, would you like to start us off by just introducing yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Florence Williams and I'm a science journalist and the author of the nature fix. Why being outside helps us or makes us happier, healthier, and more creative. Yay. Okay. So Numerous times in the nature fix, you kind of talk about your experience moving from Boulder in Colorado, which I guess you're in Colorado right now, but um, moving from Colorado to DC, which goes from a space that's a lot more, has a lot more nature in it to somewhere that's very urbanized. And at least in the book, it seems like the switch was kind of a lot and could have been a big adjustment. So can you kind of talk about how that move influenced your perspective and your approach when you were writing and researching this book? Yeah, so I I spent um, over 23 years living in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and Montana as an adult. And then my family moved to the heart of Washington, D.C. And it was a really big adjustment for me, even though I actually grew up on the East Coast in New York City. um, I just gotten pretty spoiled, (laughs) you know, by having this kind of daily connection um, to these beautiful nature trails, um, most recently in Boulder, Colorado. And when we moved, um, I just really was struck by how kind of destabilized I felt, not just because of the move, although that's destabilizing, but, you know, Washington was loud. It was sort of gray, um, kind of monochromatic, a big city, you know, noise pollution, air pollution. And I felt like this kind of stress bomb went off in my brain where I felt more anxious. I wasn't sleeping as well. Um, you know, I felt depressed and I, I just started to wonder about how our external landscape gets reflected in our internal emotional landscapes. Um, I was aware of the term coined by Richard Louvre, um, nature deficit disorder. And I wondered if that was a real thing and if there was evidence to back it up. And so that's what really launched, I think, the first article I did for Outside Magazine Um, looking at kind of current science, um, measuring people's kind of um, biologies, you know, and heart rates and nervous systems um, while in different environments, sort of comparing nature and urban environments and seeing what people's bodies uh, and their emotional states, how they were responding. Mm -hmm. For people that don't really understand what the nature, what the nature deficit disorder would be? Could you give like a brief explanation of it? 
Yeah. So I think what, what Richard Louvre meant by that was that so many uh, children, especially, but also adults are really disconnected from the natural world. They don't spend much time outside. Um, they don't spend much time in free play. They don't spend much time, um, you know, away from their devices and their work environments or their school environments. And as a result, we have this epidemic of sort of diseases of the indoors, as he described them. So things like obesity and diabetes and depression and anxiety, and even nearsightedness, which turns out to be related to vitamin D exposure from the sun. Uh, these are all diseases that are made a lot worse by, by staying indoors all the time. Uh, and so that's what he means by it. And it's not, it's not a definition that you can find in you know medical textbooks or the DSM or anything. Um, but it, it, it has, I think, taken on a life of its own. And I think a lot of people intuitively sort of think it makes sense. And so as a result, we, we do see now more pediatricians, more medical doctors actually prescribing time outside to their patients. We love to see that though. <laughs> um, so I guess kind of tying into that definition, the Nature Fix discusses a lot of very specific examples about the mechanisms that lead to benefits to the human mind and body and everything that we live. And you cover so many of them and so many different examples. And while the book is very educational, it's still easy to read. It's still easy to handle. Like you don't feel like you're being bombarded by all of this crazy stuff. So I guess, how did you decide which research programs, which nature retreat programs, which anything to kind of pursue when you were in the preparation research for the book? I do a lot of pre-reporting and preparation um, when I'm planning my research. And there are a couple of factors that have to come together. You know, one is I like to report about current research because I like to participate even in some of the studies, um, not in a sort of scientific way, but in a kind of an observational way. You know, like I might have my cortisol tested or my blood pressure tested, you know, after going on a forest walk. And it's, it's a way to kind of talk about the science and the way I do journalism, I call it participatory journalism. Um, I think it makes it really relatable for the reader. Absolutely. You know, if I can sort of describe a first person experience, that's, that's also just kind of universal. Like, you know, we're all a little bit stressed out and here's how, here's what my blood pressure did you know, after walking in the forest. So I want to find kind of places where there are rigorous studies going on currently. Um, you know, places that, um, you know, I guess with scientists really who are willing to talk, right? So uh, not all of them are willing to talk to journalists, not all of them feel like they have the time. Um, so there's this combination of both willingness on the scientist part and also good science taking place. And then I also like to really bring in sometimes cultural reporting. Um, I like to bring in a lot of first person humor. And so if I can find kind of particularly good characters, that also I think helps kind of, um, you know, bump up the writing so that readers will stay engaged. I guess off of this character building as a writer, I guess this could be for other writers or just out of curiosity. How do you build the character of a real person while being honest to the way they are, but also making sure that it stays interesting for the reader? 
well, that's why it's great to find a good character, (laughs) (laughs) you know, one who's willing to open up a little bit Mm -hmm. and sort of show their humanity. So uh, one of my favorite characters in the nature of fix is a neuroscientist named David Strayer Mm -hmm. at the university of Utah. And he was just so um, willing to talk to a journalist. I mean, he really believes in, you know, sort of getting ideas out there and, um, I think he, you know, like a lot of scientists are now feeling like maybe science is underappreciated by the public and, you know, it's, it's more important than ever really to talk to science, to talk to journalists, uh, and to talk to the general public through journalists. And so he was a great character because he actually really welcomed me to the, to the point where he invited me to go on a river trip with him. I went on a camping trip with him. Um, I spent, I I think I spent two, I went on two different kind of reporting trips with him. Um, You know, a number of long meetings. He himself loves backpacking. He loves river running. And so just right away, he was someone who was kind of interesting enough and and I had access uh, to kind of, uh, you know, make a sort of fuller portrait of him as a person. That makes sense. So, I mean, really the more time that a scientist will let you spend with them, the better, <laughs> because okay. you can see them in different contexts, you know, not just at their desk, right? Mm-hmm. right. The more you can see them out in the real world and sort of follow them around, um, the more material you're going to have. And then, you know, as a reporter, I'm taking notes in a notebook mm-hmm. and I'm not just writing down what they're saying. You know, I'm writing down what they're wearing and what gestures they're making and the titles of the books on their bookshelf. So um, they don't necessarily know I'm doing all this, you know, but it's, um, I am really recording as many details as I can that might come to be useful, you know, when it, when I'm actually writing the scene up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You were saying that Dr. Strayer is very willing to participate in journalism and talk to you and all of this stuff. Is it pretty common to have people so willing to talk to journalists? Um, is it common? You know, not really. I think there's a big range. Mm-hmm. I think, a, you know, a lot of scientists, especially ones who are running their own labs, I mean, they're super busy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, some of them are definitely more willing than others. I think it helps if you are representing a, a pretty well known publication. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, for the Nature Fix, I actually did a lot of the reporting as part of a journalism assignment, an article assignment from National Geographic. And National Geographic actually sent me to many countries to do the reporting. And so I would email labs or scientists and say, hey, um, my name is Florence Williams, and I'm writing an article for National Geographic. And then they really respond, right? If I, yeah, if yeah. I just said, you know, oh, I'm so-and-so, and, um, you know, I'm writing a blog post or whatever, uh, you know, I, I don't think you'd get the same response. So it depends, I think, um, if they've heard of the publication you're writing for and, um, you know, and again, just, I think how willing they are, you know, to have their research, you know, be written up. So I, I, I think, I, no, I think sometimes, and sometimes you're just not going to get the response that you want. And so then you move on and you find a different, a different scientist. Right. And maybe you mention the work of that other scientist, you know, it, but, but it's not, they're not going to be a major character in, in the scene if you're writing scenes. Mm-hmm. Has, have you seen changes over time in, I guess, in participation of scientists, but also in receival of 
science journalism, environmental journalism? Uh, yes, I, I definitely think so. I think a lot of scientists are really aware of the fact that that there is um, a lot of disrespect for science right now. Yeah. And um, they are not getting maybe the funding that they want, you know, from federally funded organizations and agencies. Uh, and, and so I think there's there's definitely, and, and I think there are a lot of younger scientists, you know, who are sort of gaining stature in their fields and they are more comfortable, um, you know, coming from a social media background and sort of, you know, uh, being willing to participate in a certain amount of, um, you know, public engagement. Along the strain of your writing process, your writing experiences, again, you synthesize a lot of different stories and information and people in the nature fix. So do you have any advice on how to clearly communicate and synthesize your experiences, your research findings when writing a piece, if you have such a broad and detailed base to come off of? Um, well, you know, it's tricky. I mean, because I was writing a book, there mm-hmm. was so much. I had reporting notes. I had a lot of um, scientific articles that I was reading and summarizing and taking notes on. Um, there was my own sort of personal story of, you know, hey, I'm someone who's made this move across country and here's what's happening to my brain and here's how I feel. Um, and so there were so many different layers and it became really an organizational challenge. So there are certain software programs I use, certain database management programs. Um, I have like PDF <laughs> management <laughs> programs, um, you know, that, but that's because I was also writing a book. I think for people who are writing articles, it's not quite as overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically tried to break down all the material by chapter. So I would have, you know, file folders for every chapter. And within those file folders, I would have, you know, file folders for the PDFs. I would have file folders for the interviews and the transcripts. Um, and then I would, uh, you know, sort of boldface those and, you know, put them in, in other files, that I'm, <laughs> document files that I'm writing. It, it, yeah, it's a little bit complicated. And I think, yeah, you know, yeah. but every journalist I know has kind of a different system. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it takes some experimentation. Okay. Uh, are there any specific experiences from your travels and again, research for the book that have kind of stuck with you, especially well? I had so many really moving experiences, you know, because I was writing about human health. Um, I spent a lot of time with people who frankly are sort of suffering a little bit. And I was able to watch them transform you know, to some degree when they were out in nature. And that was really powerful and um, just affected me personally, not just as a journalist, it's hard not to be moved. You know, when you're spending time with veterans who have post-traumatic stress, right? They have a lot of challenges, mental health challenges, physical challenges. Um, I went on a couple of different wilderness trips with veterans and over the course of many days, I was able to really watch them, um, you know, sort of come out of their shells, mm-hmm. open up to their environments. They started laughing and singing and sleeping better and eating better, you know, after after spending a few days in the wilderness. And, and there was some scientific basis for that. And on, on one of the trips that I actually um, did after I reported the book, 
uh, and this was for a podcast that I made related to the material called the three day effect, which is available on audible for that one. Um, the scientists were actually having the veterans wear EEG caps to measure their brain waves, um, you know, at different time points, uh, during the, the journey. And I actually got my brain waves tested too, as part of that, you know, but, but having those conversations with those veterans, you know, those, those conversations will always stay with me. Mm-hmm. So you've also written a book called Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, which also kind of brings in this environmental aspect to human health, but obviously is quite different from the nature fix. So how did your experience after writing the two books kind of differ? I think people assume those books are really, really different. (laughs) <laughs> because one is about a body part, um, you know, and, and one is about, you know, this sort of societal, you know, kind of um, paradigm, but actually the books are, I think are really related. I mean, they're both about environmental health. Mm-hmm. The breast book was largely about how the environment around us affects human health. So I talk a lot about increased rates of breast cancer um, from industrial chemicals. I talk about early puberty, Um, I talk about, um, you know, even breast implants (laughs) and some of the health effects associated with that. And, and while on the surface, a book about breasts maybe seems like kind of a lighthearted topic, it actually wasn't at all. And it was really an, it was really an environmental history of a body part. So it talked about the hidden connections between human health and the world around us. And that's exactly what the nature fix book does too. Only instead of talking about how the environment is hurting our health, it's talking about how the environment can actually help our health. Um, how being in nature can make us, um, you know, just happier and healthier. And I will say that I think audiences, readerships responded a lot more to the positive messages in the nature fix book. People, don't really want to read about bad news, unfortunately. Um, you know, as an environmental journalist, I feel like it's really important to tell some of those stories so that we can fix our problems right. and we have to be aware of them in order to fix them. Um, and, and part of the breast book, I mean, you know, part, parts of that book really are funny and fun. And I, I think it's a great read. I don't think it's like a super bummer of a read, but I think that, that people might perceive it that way. Um, whereas the nature fix has this really positive message that people can kind of aspire to and, um, readers love aspirational messages. <laughs> no, I think that's good to hear. Cause a lot of the times with sustainability and environmentalism, people get stuck in just focusing on all the bad things that are happening and sharing the bad facts and the doomsday narrative. Um, when I do think you're right, people like calls to action or things that can actually be done to fix the problem. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a conundrum because, you know, we want to reveal these problems, Mm -hmm. but people don't always want to read about them. So then how do we present that information in a way uh, that that is still sometimes an enjoyable read? And that's a real challenge as a as a as a creative journalist. Yeah. Do you think making it an enjoyable read part of that is spinning that so that at the end there's some type of call to action or in good news, this is happening to fix this, or is it more about the storytelling and making the story engaging, even if it is hard to hear? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think it may seem kind of contrived to, you know, spin it like, oh, it's going to be fine. We just yeah. have to change our light bulbs. Um, so, I, I, you know, I guess it appeals to me more to think of 
the power of the storytelling, you know, and the quality of the writing. Um, But I think it depends. I think there's room for all of it. You know, there's room for the sort of lighter stories and and there are room for the heavy stories. Um, You know, we, we really need, we need to read all of them. Absolutely. So obviously you're a science journalist, but that can take so many different routes. So I guess why environmental journalism for you? Well, I don't always write about the environment. I'm interested in a lot of other things. I do book reviews. I write about architecture. Um, but I, I think just from a pretty young age, I have been really passionate about um, things like conservation and environmental health and planetary health. Um, and so, uh, that just appealed to me from the get-go, even in college, I started an environmental organization and an environmental newspaper on my campus to write about environmental issues on campus. And then I got a journal, um, I got a journalism internship at high country news, which is based in Colorado, really specializes and focuses on environmental stories. Um, and then I got hired by them. So, you know, it was kind of just an early career path too. Mm-hmm. And then I stepped back from it for a, a while to write about other things, but I, I, you know, I, I've just always come back to it because it's just a passion of mine. Yeah. Maybe this should have come first, but <laughs> what did you always want to be a journalist or did you kind of start seeing problems that you wanted to write about and share about? in college or whatever. Well, interesting. Uh, I was actually the editor of my high school paper. Okay. So in, in that way, I guess, yes, I always had kind of an interest in that, but I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do. In fact, when I got to college, I did not write for the college paper. Mm-hmm. Um, just wasn't really interested in doing sort of daily journalism. Right. And it wasn't until I realized that there was a really good campus magazine. <laughs> and this was at Yale um, that I started writing for that magazine and thinking, oh, I like writing these longer stories. You know, that appealed to me. Um, and then, yeah, and then the internships happened. So yeah, I mean, I guess pretty early on, you know, it became it became clear that it was something that I could do. Mm-hmm. Okay, one more piece of advice to wrap us up here. Do you have any recommendations for younger writers, or I guess anyone, on having your voice heard and getting your work noticed as a writer? I think it's challenging right now because there are almost too many ways to get your voice heard Yeah, <laughs> because you can tweet and you can make your own TikTok. And, you, you know, I, I think, it, um, I guess just, you know, practice, right. And it doesn't so much matter who sees it at this point mm-hmm. or how much impact it has. I think it's good to spend your, your early years sort of developing your sensibility and your style um, and your voice. And, and that just takes a lot of practice and also reading other writers, um, seeing other forms of, of journalism, listening to the podcasts you like, you know, finding the genre that appeals to you and also, um, you know, the role models. And then of course, trying to find work where you can be exposed to mentors, um, you know, who can, who can help you develop that even further. Absolutely. Did you have any mentors that really I don't want to say changed your life, but really helped you, I guess, along your journey. 
Sure. Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned High Country News, that internship and the publisher there, Ed Marston, uh, was really a brilliant, a real a brilliant guy. And there were, I think there were only one or two interns at the time. And then I got hired after college to be a staffer, also worked with him. There were only two staffers. <laughs> so I got a lot of attention from him. Yeah. And, um, and also from his wife, Betsy Marston, who is the editor and a, a tough editor. Uh, and I, I just learned so much from them. Yeah. That was really lucky. That's lovely. Especially so early in your career. I feel like yeah. nice to have those people to really push you. Exactly. And I, I, as tempting as it is, I think for a lot of young writers to want to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it does really help to be associated with, uh, a sort of, you know, um, well-established organization because you, you can learn things just more quickly that way. And then it's good to kind of, I think, learn the establishment patterns and, you know, how to fact check and kind of what the ethics of the profession are. Um, and then, you know, if you want break out on your own kind of from that foundation, I mean, that would be my advice. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. All right. Well, thank you so much for, again, taking the time to come talk to me and be on the show and everything. Thank you, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be here and good luck to you and your career and good luck to your listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to share the podcast. It helps us spread the word about sustainability, but also keep incredible guests like Florence coming onto the show. If you want to learn more about Florence Williams and her work, go to florencewilliams.com. As usual, links and everything will be in the description of the episode. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time.